I've tracked all the dividends. The company has now paid me over $6,100 in dividends. Now, remember, I bought it for $2,479. So I've already more than made up my money just from the dividends alone. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. But first, let's check in with my awesome co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Hey, man. The past week has been a little crazy. It's hard to complain too much, though, because getting to travel around the country, getting to visit with family, but did have the transmission go out in the van, so I had to put a whole new transmission in the van. I was stuck out in Denver you know, there wasn't a way for us to just kind of like sit around, maybe wait and get it back to one of those mechanics that we knew really well. So we just kind of had to do what we had to do. It was 3700 bucks. That's obviously like one of those just, you know, super frustrating things that get you really mentally down, especially when you're in this space trying to save money. But what we kind of fell back on was just how blessed we were to still have our jobs during all the coronavirus outbreak, as well as, you know, being prepared for an emergency like that and have that emergency fund built up. So there's just a little plug to make sure you guys have that emergency fund so that you're not susceptible to things like these really high interest rate loans or these other predatory practices that are out there. So get that emergency fund up. But how about you, Cody? Well, I have a similar case of the emergency fund, Justin. Unfortunately, I was talking about my deck a couple of weeks back. And as we started digging into the deck, we realized that part of the foundation was rotted and this thing's going to cost like probably $10,000 more than what I'd expected to pay. So Again, not the best thing in the world, but I got to look at the positives like you were, still have a job, I'm still able to, you know, put food on the table, still paying the bills, so I'm glad that I'm in this space saving as much money as I can so I can take on expenses like this. But enough about us, Justin, let's take a second for our awesome sponsors. One of the best ways to hit financial independence faster is to reduce your monthly expenses as low as possible. And one of those monthly expense charges typically is a cell phone bill. And I know a lot of people that are using these big providers get locked into these contracts, they don't shop around, and sooner or later, a few years down the road, you're paying an arm and a leg for your cell phone service. And even though shopping around for a new provider might only take a couple of minutes or something, most of us just don't do it because it's not part of our daily routine. It's not something that we think about actively. But if you do want to save money with your cell phone provider, enter Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is online. So kind of like an online savings bank, Mint Mobile can save on retail locations and overhead and pass those savings directly to their customers. All their plans come with unlimited talk and text. You can choose the right data plan for you and you can use your own phone and keep your same number along with all your existing contacts. So if you're looking to cut that monthly cell phone bill down to just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, you can go to mintmobile.com slash show. That's mintmobile.com slash show. All right, Fi Show listeners slash real estate investors, have you ever given the door code out to one of your properties? Or maybe you left a key under the mat for a delivery person. Did you feel nervous about it? If yes, you have to go check out Igloo Home. That's Igloo, as in what Eskimos live in, then home. If you own a property and are a business owner like me, your biggest limitation is that you can't be in two places at once. And no matter how you choose to let someone in, you always seem to be trading off security for accessibility. Now you don't have to. With Igloo Home's remote access smart lock, you decide who has access and when. Set a one-time pin so people can stop by while you're out. Your Igloo Home app will keep a log of every time a pin is used, 
so you can relax knowing your home or office is still secure. So if you're a property owner who is curious about how this thing works, you should definitely go check out the Igloo Home website. Igloo Home has products to fit every property. There's a smart deadbolt, a key box, a padlock, and more. There's a ton of stuff on there. And as listeners of The Fi Show, you'll get a 15% discount off your smart lock if you order with promo code FISHOW on www.igloohome.co. That's www.igloohome.co with promo code FISHOW. And on today's episode, we have Ken Wall from Simply Investing. And the reason Justin and I wanted to have this guy on, we've known him through the personal finance sphere since probably a year or two ago. And this guy is just all about dividend investing. And as index investors, Justin and I ourselves, we wanted to bring a different perspective on. We wanted someone else who does something different, who's still making strategic smart moves in the financial independent space to show us the power of dividend investing, what we might be missing out on. But it's up for you to decide. And before I give away the whole episode, take it away, Ken Wall. So I graduated from university. I've got a computer science degree. I graduated in 96. So I was 24 years old at the time. And I did everything sort of like what everybody else does. My parents said, go out and get a good education. So I went out and got a university degree. And I said, now what? They said, well, go out and get a job. So I said, okay, I got to go get a job. So I got a nine to five job. So three years into it, it didn't happen overnight. It just kind of over time. And about the three year mark, I realized, wow, I don't know if I want to be doing this for the next 40 years of my life, uh, the nine to five gig. Uh, even though I liked my job, I mean, the people were great. The work was good. And in the beginning, you're just excited just to have a cubicle and your own computer and a desk. <laughs> but after about three years, I was like, wow, OK, I got to start thinking about something. So for me, it started around 99, 2000. That's when it started. And I started thinking about and we were, nobody called it financial independence. Nobody called it fire back then. But it was like, I need to do something outside of the nine to five. And when you have that realization, you know, you have that moment where you're like, there's something else that I want to be doing. I want to start building something bigger. What kind of actionable steps did you start taking? And what was your initial plan? First off, no initial plan. I'm like, I don't know why. I know I got to do something, but I don't know what. And I got married in 97. We kind of talked about it. We started a small side, again, wasn't called a side hustle back then. We started a side hustle. The company was called Equilibrium, like eco as in environmentally friendly equilibrium. So it was a water purification, water distillers and just distributing those. So my wife and I started that. It was a side thing. It was maybe two, three hours a week, set up a website. And back then, I don't know if you guys know Microsoft front page. No. <laughs> so that's what we used <laughs> to build a website. It's really old. So I, I think for me, that was it was a step in the right direction. I wasn't sure if that was the right step if that was the thing that was going to give me financial freedom. But I said, you know, I let me try something. Let me try something on the side. I have no idea if it's going to make me $100 a month or if it's going to make me 1000 a month. But let's just try it. So that's how we got started. That was our first step. So once you got that business running, did you have any benchmarks or any goals you wanted to hit? Did you want this thing, Equilibrium, to be your savior that could get you out of the nine to five? That thing was going to start pumping out $10,000, $20,000 a month. Or was it just some side hustle that you wanted to prove to yourself that, hey, making money outside of the nine to five is possible. And if I save up a big enough nest egg, maybe I can retire early using the what we call the 4% rule. The original plan was, OK, let's start it up. Let's scale it up and start generating enough income per month to cover our, our expenses, because once they will cover our expenses, then the nine to five job wasn't necessary anymore. That was the original plan. Long story short, it was a big failure. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> It was just so many, as you guys know, as side hustles or uh, business owners, 
there's a lot of variables, lots of things at play. And I had no background in marketing, no background in sales. My background was computer science. I was a technical guy. Uh, I could look at software and write programs, but marketing and sales was completely new to me. Same with my wife. She had a background in electrical engineering, so also working in high tech. So I probably about a year, two years into it, we folded the side hustle. It wasn't generating enough income to make it worthwhile. And when you're getting ready to go into this, I guess first, what made you think it was going to be successful? And then on the back end, what did you realize that you didn't know that you didn't know? That's a tough question. The first part is I had no idea. I just thought, okay, well, let's just start this. And I'm an optimist by nature. Even now with the COVID-19 thing, you know, the markets are going to go back up. You know, the stock portfolio is going to do. I'm an optimist. So I was an optimist going into it, thinking we're going to make tons of money. And this is great. And quit my day job. The second part of the question, marketing, sales, and business development. So once we got into it, realized I have no clue how this stuff works. So I started reading books on marketing sales and all that. But once we realized we didn't, we didn't know any of this, and I think we were, at, I don't even remember, we're going back 20 years now. Uh, I think the revenue was maybe a hundred bucks a month or something or 200 bucks. And that was it. So that, I think it was time for us that we were like, okay, well, we got to step back. Let's do something else. So we went, I mean, we kept our day jobs, right? So we were still working and I did the, my wife and I kept the day job going. And it was much later that I started with simply investing. So I definitely want to dive into your investing strategy because we've never had anyone on who specializes in dividends. And I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. But first, I want to preface that conversation with, so you and your wife are working in what I'd like to call high paying jobs. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But was frugality something that played a large part in your life? Because I'm imagining that if you're going to start investing, you need to have that gap between your expenses and your income. So were you trying to keep your expenses as low as possible for the sole reason of investing for your future? Yes and no. So in the beginning, not so much, because like you said, high paying jobs, we're both in our 20s, we're young, we were making good salaries, we didn't have any kids. I mean, we're both frugal to begin with. But again, I just followed what everybody else does. Like my parents said, well, now you got a job, well, you should go out and invest some money in mutual funds, right? You guys have the 401k plan. In Canada, we have the same thing. It's RRSPs, that's what they're called. And so put the money in 401 and RSPs and mutual funds. And that was it. As far as investing went, that was it. I think both my wife and I from day one, we always understood that you have to spend less than you earn. That's always been the case. And then whatever's left over just went into mutual funds. That was a big mistake, but we can talk about that too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just even starting out investing for a lot of people is intimidating. And maybe even the ones who do it, they're only doing exactly like what you said, like what everyone else is doing. So at what point did you start really studying, investing, and developing your own strategy? Yeah. So for me, that started in 2003. Our son was born and we moved cities. My wife and I were originally in Montreal. That's where we graduated. That's where we had our day jobs. We moved in 2000, we moved to Ottawa. So it was a brand new city. But again, we kept expenses low. We had a small place, just big enough. You know, for the two of us, it was great. And then our son was born in 2003. So now you can imagine me holding the baby at three in the morning, <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he was, and when he was, when he was born the first six months, he was up all the time, you know, lack of sleep and all this. And I can remember this vividly, like it was yesterday, even though it's been 17 years now, he's 17 now, and he's starting school, <laughs> university next year. In 2003, I'm holding him. We got those, I don't know what they were called, like those, it's like a backpack, but it's a forward facing backpack and you put the baby in it. 
And that was the only way to get him to fall asleep. So it's three in the morning. I've got him. We've been doing this for like three, four weeks. And this one day, and I'm like, I'm walking around in the living room. We had a bookshelf, a whole bunch of books. And I had bought an investing book to learn how to invest. I bought the book, never had a chance to read it. It stayed on the bookshelf for about a year. And now it's three in the morning. I'm holding the baby, holding my son, trying to get him to fall asleep. I'm staring at the book and I'm like, might as well just read the book since I'm up anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what started. That's what got me started on understanding what are MERs when it comes to fees for mutual funds? What is the cost of investing over the long term? What are the better ways to invest versus the lousy ways to invest what everybody else does just because we don't know? I wish they would teach this stuff in school, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody taught this to me anywhere in high school and college, university, never got any of this stuff taught to me. And so I'm sitting there and I'm reading this book and just because of our son's schedule when he was three months old, I was able to finish the book like in four days. And that's what got me started. Wow. So let's kind of talk about some of those mistakes that you were making. So you mentioned that you were in these mutual funds, you did not understand the fees. And as we know, as guys who love spreadsheets, fees can just absolutely cripple a portfolio. If you're paying a mutual fund one, one and a half, two percent, over the long term, you're gonna be paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to that mutual fund manager. So could you talk about some of the mistakes and what you learned after you spent those four days reading that book? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the fees. I was paying two and a half percent, three percent MERs. That's it's crazy. Uh, we're in Canada. Everything costs more. Everything costs more here. The average MER in Canada is two point two percent even today. I was paying really high fees. Had no idea I was paying those fees. They were hidden fees. So that's what I, one thing I learned. So I went back and sort of looked at the statements and started. Then I opened up a spreadsheet and started putting the numbers in and realizing how much this was really costing. The other thing was, again, I just followed the advice. Well, you know, go out and get a financial advisor, you know, talk to somebody at the bank. They'll help you get set up with mutual funds. And that's what I did. I realized at the end of the day, because I wasn't paying for the financial advisor, right? I was assuming the bank was paying them, right? I'm not paying anything. I'm just taking their advice and buying mutual funds. They get paid commissions from the mutual fund companies. So at the end of the day, they're salespeople for selling those types of expensive funds. So I realized that the expenses were too high and there was no way I was going to reach financial independence sooner than later. I'd probably have to work till I'm 65 or more. So we've alluded to the fact that, you know, you become a dividend investor, but do you want to kind of level set and let everybody know what is a dividend and what is different about being a, a dividend investor versus just a standard investor? Okay, sure. So let me take a minute to explain a dividend, just make sure we're on the same page. So, for example, if you were to buy uh, shares in a company and the company is paying you one dollar dividend and you own a thousand shares, you will receive a thousand dollars for as long as you own those shares and as long as the company continues to pay the dividend. The dividend is basically cash that gets deposited into your trading account. So some companies pay every month, some of them pay every quarter and the money gets put into your trading account. Now, you can spend that money if you wish or you can reinvest it. So dividends are basically money in your pocket. And it's the best source, in my opinion, and we'll talk about this later, is the best source of passive income anyway. So that's what a dividend is. And so what happened is when I finished reading that book, they touched on dividend investing and they mentioned a couple of resources. And then the name Warren Buffett came up. Believe it or not, I had not heard of Warren Buffett until I read that book. (laughs) So that led me down a wormhole, a rabbit hole, where then I learned about Benjamin Graham who was Warren Buffett's mentor 
and teacher at Columbia University. And that led me down to some other investors. And then that's how it started learning more and more about dividend investing. So my approach is a little bit different. I call it dividend value investing. So I'll explain what the difference is. So a pure dividend investor is only concerned about investing in stocks that pay dividends, right? As long as it pays a dividend, it looks good. Dividend investor will go ahead and buy the company. A value investor is someone who's going to look at the value of the company and figure out, is the company undervalued, priced low, or is it overvalued, priced high? And as of strictly as a value investor, if a stock is undervalued, priced low, they're going to go and buy it. So what I do is I combine the best of sort of both worlds. And so I'm looking at dividend stocks that are undervalued. And in addition to that, I define what I call them, they have to be quality stocks. If we have time, we can go, it's, it's, I have a 12-step checklist. And if a company passes everything on the checklist, the 12 rules, then it's a quality stock. So it has to pass that first, then it has to pay dividends, and then it has to be undervalued. So that was one of the things I had on my list to go through the 12 rules of simply investing, as it's called. And maybe we can just quickly go through them. We don't have to spend five minutes on each one, obviously, because there's 12 of them. But if you want to either just hit each one really quick or go over some of the most important ones. Yeah, I would love to. You guys should get me started. I'm like passionate about this stuff. We can talk about this <laughs> stuff all day. Perfect. <laughs> now I don't know. We have, we, I know we don't have all day, but uh, let me go through the 12 rules. Rule number one, do you understand the product or service offered by the company? If you don't, don't buy the stock. doesn't matter what anybody else tells you. And this doesn't mean you have to be an expert in what the company is doing, but a general understanding. If you can explain it to your grandmother or to a nine-year-old, then you're good. Number two, Will people still be using this product or service in 20 years, right? Because you're investing your hard-earned money, you don't want to put that money at risk. So you want to invest it in companies that are going to be around for a very, very long time. Now, before I continue with the list, each of these rules is designed to minimize your risk. It's to increase your margin of safety because you are putting in your hard-earned money. You don't want to put that at risk. Okay, rule number three, does the company have a low-cost lasting competitive advantage. Very quick, uh, I'll use Warren Buffett's example. So think of a company as a castle, a corporation as a castle. And around the castle, there's a moat. The wider the moat and the deeper the moat, the better it's going to be able to protect itself against competitors. So a quick example, you look at Coca-Cola. They've been around for over 100 years. They've been paying dividends for over 100 years, and they operate in over 130 countries. So you can take that logo, the Coca-Cola logo, anywhere in the world and show it to people and they know exactly what you're talking about. And if you were to start a software company yourself from scratch today, you would have to spend billions and billions of dollars in marketing and advertising and you still wouldn't get to where Coca-Cola is today. So, right, they have that competitive advantage and that brand recognition. So that's key. Rule number four, is the company recession proof? So let me ask you guys, if there's a chance you may lose your job, are you going to go out and buy a new car tomorrow? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Are you going to go out on an expensive vacation overseas? Nope. <laughs> and what's happening as we're recording this is the end of April. We're still in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis. What is happening right now to the airlines, the tourism industries, and the automotive manufacturers? Getting slaughtered. They're in trouble, right? So Boeing announced the dividend is being cut to zero two weeks ago. Yesterday, GM announced that they're cutting their dividend to zero. If a company doesn't pass rule number four, don't buy the company. Now, even when there's a recession, 
and there is a market downturn or you're unemployed, you still have to eat, right? When you come home at night, you still have to turn the lights on. So the companies that are providing those products and services, those are the ones you want to invest in. Because again, we want to protect your capital. Okay, rule number five, does the company have consistent earnings growth? So we look at the 10-year average earnings growth of at least 8% or more. And what we're doing here is we want to make sure we're investing in companies that have a history of profitability, right? So if we could graph it out, we want to see the graph going up. If the graph is going down, the line's going down, don't invest in the company. If the line's up and down and random and you've got negative earnings per share and then it goes up and it goes down again, don't invest in that. We want to see consistent growth. Rule number six, does the company have consistent dividend growth, right? Again, we're looking at 10 years or more. We want to look at a history of a company paying increasing dividends. And this one is really important because at the end of the day, what I'm teaching and what the rules are designed for is to help you build for yourself a solid portfolio that generates passive income. Not only passive income, but growing passive income every single year. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we're picking companies that pass these rules. Rule number six, we're still talking about consistent dividend growth. Let me give you three quick examples. Procter & Gamble. Everybody know Procter & Gamble? Mm-hmm. They make Tide of all these products. They have had 62 years of consecutive dividend increases. Johnson & Johnson, 57 years of consecutive dividend increases. Coca-Cola, 56 years of consecutive dividend increases. Think about how many recessions and market downturns we've had in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But companies like this continue to increase their dividend year after year after year. And every time they do that, remember we said the dividend is money in your pocket. When the dividend goes up, that's more money in your pocket, right? So I can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. Is there, or, you know, are we going into a recession? Is the market going to go further down or is it going to go up? I have no idea. But when I look at companies like this, who have had 40, 50, 60 years of consecutive dividend increases, I have a high degree of confidence that companies like this will continue to pay the dividend in the future. Rule number seven, does the company have a low payout ratio? So a simple example, if a company has an earnings per share of $2 and they pay out a dividend of $1 per share, that's pretty good. That means 50% of what they earn, they're paying to the shareholders. The rest of the money, they're keeping it, they're reinvesting it into the business. So that's good. What happens if the company is earning $2 per share, but they're paying a dividend of $3 per share? What's wrong with that? They're paying more than they're making. That's right. And there's companies <laughs> out there that do that, <laughs> right? They're basically borrowing money to pay the shareholders. You don't have to have a degree in accounting or finance to realize that that's, you know, a payout ratio of over 100% is bad. Rule number eight, does a company have low debt, right? So what we're looking for here is, you know, all things considered equal. Let's say you were looking at a company, company A had a debt of 10%, company B had a debt of 500%. Who are you going to invest in? Company A. Company A, that's right. All things considered equal. Because when there's a crash and when there's a recession, companies that have very high debt are going to have a very hard time surviving the recession, right? So that's rule number eight. Rule number nine, does the company have a good credit rating? Again, all things considered equal. One company has a rating of A plus, the other one has a D minus. Who are you going to invest in? A plus, baby. (laughs) There you go. 
right? Because we want to protect your capital. Absolutely. Number 10, does the company actively buy back its shares? So not all companies do this, but a lot of the big ones that we follow do this. They actively buy back their shares over time. That's good for the shareholder because the value of your shares is going to come up because your ownership comes up. Rule number 11, now we're looking at is, so one to 10 was looking at quality companies. If a company passes the first 10 rules, you know that you've got a quality company in front of you. So that's awesome. Rule number 11 is looking to see is the company undervalued, price low, or is it overvalued, price high? So 11 is in three parts, but we won't take too long here. 11A, want to make sure the PE ratio is 25 or less. 11B, this is a big one. And we go into, in the course, we, we spent almost an hour on this one because this is a big one, but I'll, I'll give you guys the intro here. So rule B is to make sure that the current dividend yield is higher than the company's 10-year average dividend yield. And if it is, then the company's undervalued. And then rule 11C is the price to book ratio should be three or less. Okay, the last one. I've kept the best one for <laughs> last. The last rule has nothing to do with looking at financial data nothing to do with researching stocks, has everything to do with you, the investor. And rule number 12 is you have to remember to keep your emotions out of investing. And I know that's not, it's hard, especially when it comes to money. People get very emotional and personal about money, but you have to keep the emotions out of it and stay disciplined and patient in this entire process, right? Stock markets go up and down all the time. On average, it's five to seven years, right? It goes up and it comes down. So if you know that that's going to happen, and if you've applied the 12 rules, you've done your homework, you bought a stock for $40, and tomorrow it drops to 35 that's okay. That's okay. you got to have the patience and the discipline. We're just going to write it out. As long as the dividends are coming in and they're growing, it's generating passive income for you, perfect. So that's sort of the, in a nutshell, guys. We spent about two, you know, in the course, it's all, the entire course is two and a half hours. And we go through it in, in a lot more detail with uh, real life examples for the 12 rules. So it seems like a very interesting list of 12 rules, and I'm definitely following the logic. But I'm just curious, you know, it feels like maybe nine, maybe 10 of those rules could be automated to some degree if you had the data. Like, obviously, the, the computer's not going to know if you know the company, understand the product. But most of those questions seem like something that could be generated. So what's stopping someone from just having a list generated from them? And then they're just able to say, yep, I understand that company. Boom, I invest in it. Or even creating like an almost like an index fund of these companies that are that pass all these rules. Yeah, so you could certainly do that. And I encourage that. What I do in the, in the courses, I teach you how to do that. And I give you, there's a spreadsheet. You fill it in, you fill in all the data, and then you can easily tell which rules it passes and which ones it fails. And so we do that with the Simply Investing Report, which I also, I started uh, three years ago. I track 227 companies every month. Out of the 12, there's nine that are, we call it the nine criteria, because those are the quantitative rules. And you're right, I'm a computer science guy, so we write a program to just crunch through all that. So I do that every single month with 227 companies, and I publish the results in the Simply Investing Report every month. Sweet, man. And I want to dig in just for one second, play devil's advocate on the qualitative side. So one of the companies you mentioned that recently cut dividends was Boeing. And going back to some of those examples, like in my head, I'm like, okay, flights aren't going away. Boeing makes airplanes. They're one of the best companies at making airplanes. There's no way that this company is going to be cutting dividends and nobody's going to be traveling. Like that's not even something that would cross through my mind. Is there anything you can do to, I guess, hinder losses like that or prevent against companies like that cutting their dividends? 
You could. There's things that we can do to minimize that. With Boeing specifically, it wouldn't pass rule number four. The rule number four is, is the company recession proof. So I've been doing this for 21 years. I've gone through 9-11. I've gone through the 2008 recession. And we saw the same thing happen to the airlines in 9-11, right? People stopped traveling. They canceled all their flights. And we saw that happen then. But you raised a good point. Even if you apply the 12 rules, and I've seen this in myself over the last 21 years, and you, you know, you've done your homework and you've bought a stock. In my experience, during your investing sort of career, you will come across one or two companies that just, Enron, I mean, they lied about the financial statements. As, as an investor, you never would have known that, right? Unless you were a C-level executive at the company, you never would have known that. So over your lifetime, it's going to happen. You're going to get one or two companies, maybe even three companies that are going to fail and they're just going to, you know, they're, you're going to suffer losses. And that's why when we do this type of investing, we diversify. We diversify across industries and across companies so that overall your portfolio continues to generate growing passive income. Kind of continuing with that devil's advocate kind of theme, you know, when I hear things like this, like, oh, that makes so much sense. But then I always come back to, well, why isn't everyone rich? Like, why isn't everyone just following these exact rules? Why don't we get stressed out about it? Why don't we add all this complexity? Like, why is it just everyone buying these exact same companies and just keep it simple? That's a great question. Somebody asked that to Warren Buffett about 30 years ago when he was giving a talk at a university. And they said, if this is so simple, value investing, why doesn't everybody do it? And I'm going to give you his answer because I believe in his answer. Human beings have a tendency to complicate things, right? We just, it's human nature. If it's too easy, you're like, ah, it's too easy. It's just, ah, I can't believe how easy this is. And so he said human beings have a tendency to complicate things. And he said the flat earth society will continue to thrive <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you say. <laughs> Let me just pause here for a second because you brought up a good point. So both of my kids, my son and daughter, they're 17 and 13 now. They started investing when they were nine. They each have their own stock portfolio. Once a year, we sit down with them. I sit down with them and I go through, add up all their dividends and we put it into an Excel spreadsheet. So that's how easy it is so easy that a nine-year-old could do this. Why don't more people do it? I don't know. That's a good question. So I have kind of a couple of points. I'm going to try to just package them all into one question and you can take it in any direction you want. So one, why do you recommend dividend value investing over just regular index investing? And I'm going to kind of couple that question with, I know men you mentioned diversification before. What's like your ideal number of stocks? And can you also talk about the problem of over diversification? Because I've read some things about you talking about that before. I know it's a lot in one, but hopefully you can just tackle that in any way you want. <laughs> yeah. So number of stocks. So if you read the material from like the 80s, you know, they said stick to 20, 25 stocks. That's it. What happened now is because of the Internet, I, we can get information very quickly. Within seconds, I can figure out what the stock ticker symbol is, what the stock price is, what the P ratio is, what the dividend is, all this stuff. I have access to Excel. I've got access to websites. I can get all this data easily. So nowadays, it's quite easy for individual investors to manage their stock portfolio. So I would say anywhere from 25 to 50 stocks. So I think that's a good number to have. And that's average. You may go to 55 or 51 or whatever, but on average, that's a good number to have. Over diversification is a problem. There's a time and place for everything. So I'm not hating on all the indexers and I, and I don't want them all coming after me. <laughs> but if you look at some of the index funds and ETFs, 
Some of them have over 3,000 stocks in the fund. That's how many stocks that they hold in there. And when you hold that many stocks in a single fund, statistically speaking, you are now also holding stocks that have high debt, stocks that have a very high payout ratio, stocks that are not recession proof, stocks that don't pay dividends, right? So now we're getting into poor quality stocks, right? Because out of the universe of stocks, not all of them are high quality stocks, right? So you end up with poor quality stocks in there. And on any given day, some stocks are undervalued, they're priced low, and some are overvalued. When you put money into an index fund, the index fund takes your money, pulls it with all the other investors, and they go out and buy a piece of every single stock out there, right? So now you're buying stocks that are overvalued. And that violates rule number 11, because we want to only invest in stocks that are undervalued and they're priced low. And what would you say to somebody who says, okay, some of the stocks I hold, they're not paying a dividend, but if it was paying a dividend, then that just means the value of the stock is not going to go up as fast. And so it's kind of the same thing. Like I can either have a stock that goes from $10 to $12, or I can have a stock that goes from 10 to 11 and then puts $1 in my pocket via dividend. But at the end of the day, it's the same. Great question. I love it. You guys have awesome questions. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing with dividends, as I mentioned before, it's cash literally in your pocket, it gets deposited into your trading account, right? So there is a benefit in getting that cash immediately. So my personal example, I bought 185 shares in TC Energy. This was back in 2000. Stock was $13.40 each. So uh, multiply that by 185 shares, that's $2,479. Okay, so that's how much I invested into the company. And whenever you buy any stock or ETF or index fund, your initial capital, that's what's at risk, right? If TC Energy went bankrupt, I would lose $2,479. That was what I was at risk. I still own the company. The company has raised its dividend every single year since then. So that's 20 years of consecutive increases. And I'm a money nerd. I keep track of all this. I've got Excel spreadsheets, keep track of every single penny <laughs> that comes in. I've tracked all the dividends. The company has now paid me over $6,100 in dividends. Now remember, I bought it for 2,479. So I've already more than made up my money just from the dividends alone without selling a single share. And I still own the 185 shares. So the advantage with dividends is the money it's given to you, it's in your pocket. If the company goes bankrupt, they can never come back and take that money from you. Whereas if you didn't have the dividends, you're only hoping for the share price to go up. And if a company goes bankrupt, the share is going to go down to zero. Now you've got nothing. And I guess that's with the assumption that you didn't take those dividends and then just directly reinvest them back into the company. Because then if the company goes belly up, you, you still lose all of it. So when you're getting that dividend paid out, are you then taking it and spreading it across all of your holdings instead of putting all those dividends back into the same company? Yes. So that's exactly what I did. I've taken the dividends over the years, spread it across other dividend paying stocks, right? And at the end of the day, eventually the end goal, once you achieve FIRE, is you want to be able to pay your living expenses, right? And the dividends are going to help you to cover your living expenses without selling a single share. If you have the dividend in a dividend stock in a taxable account and you're not reinvesting the dividends, are you receiving that dividends like a direct deposit to your bank account or as a check or how does that work? And then how is that taxed? Okay. So the dividend gets deposited uh, directly into your trading account. So the cash sits there, it's, it's yours, it's right away. But then at the end of the year, when you do your taxes, you will have to declare, the way it works in Canada is a trading 
company, the bank, will send you a receipt or a notice of how many dividends you earned during that tax year. And then you have to declare that as uh, income. And now there is a benefit, though, even in the U.S., the U.S. dividends are taxed less than your uh, income in the U.S. So there is a tax advantage to earning dividends. Okay, awesome. And then the second part of my question, so especially in the financial independence space, a really popular retirement strategy is using the 4% rule. So let's assume we have a million dollars sitting in our account, just nice and clean. We'll just put it in one account and we're taking Mm -hmm. out the $40,000 every year to live off of. Let's say you have a million dollars in dividend value stocks. All retirement accounts aside, it's just sitting in a regular taxable account. On average, if you can give an average estimate, like how much dividends would you be receiving from that portfolio every year? So the dividends are, every company is different. Generally, the companies that we invest in, on average, I'm going to say three and a half to four percent, right? There's companies that are paying five, six percent right now. And especially when we see a market crash, as stock prices come down, the dividend yield goes up. So any, I'm going to give a big range, anywhere from three and a half to like five percent. Okay, so that's thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars in that scenario. Yes. Yeah. And if we're following the twelve rules of simply investing, we're investing in companies that have shown us that they have a history of growing the dividend. So the following year, you're going to get a little bit more. And I'll give you an example. Even now, even through the last what's happened in the last five weeks, every single company in my portfolio has increased their dividend in like the last eight months. The dividends have gone up, right? Johnson and Johnson increased their dividend a couple of weeks ago, even given everything that's been happening in the markets. So you've mentioned like the course and you're teaching people how to buy these things, but you also mentioned that you yourself are keeping up with this list of over 200 of these. I guess my first question is A, like how would somebody access this list of 200 something? And then B, if they do access this list of 200 and something, is there any reason why they shouldn't just, okay, these 200 and something, got it. I'll invest in these, period, the end. I don't need to look at anything anymore. Absolutely. So the report, the Simply Investing report is a monthly subscription. So it's available to anybody. It's $19 a month or $199 for the year. So I do offer that as a, as a service. So anybody can subscribe to it and you can do that. And you're right. If uh, I do have customers who buy the report and that's it, they don't have time to take the course and they don't have the desire to spend the time to evaluate everything here. So just to go back, because now you're thinking, well, why did he make the investing course? He just should have gone straight to the report. So what happened is I originally started 2010 is when I launched my um, Simply Investing course. So I started by teaching the class. I, uh, I started in 2007 is I started teaching in person. So I would go around, you know, two, three times a year, Toronto and Montreal and, you know, cities around here. And I would teach the class in person. In 2010, I put the course online. And now it's sold in over 35 countries all over the world where people have taken the course and they and they learn how to invest by themselves. The biggest feedback I got from people who took the course, number one, they said, I wish I knew this 10 years ago. Number two, I mean, it's great. Everything makes sense. But, you know, why don't you just tell me what to buy? Right. Like it's, you know, especially if you're if you're married, you've got kids, you've got a day job, you're busy in your life. And so that's why I created the report was a natural sort of extension of the course itself. Now, I do have true money nerds, like do-it-yourself investors. Like they want to build their own spreadsheet. They want to get their own financial data and access it and put it in there. And for those people, the course is the best way to do it, right? And for everyone else who doesn't want to spend that time, I just want to open the report. And the report is, I'll send you guys a copy of the report. It's literally, it's page one. Don't even have to look at the other look at page one, you're done. And so it's five minutes and you're done. 
so that's how I started with the report. Just as a quick follow-up, I wanted to ask, you know, if you had it, say it's January 2020, you've got the report, how long can you wait before you really need to look at the report again? Like how often should somebody be thinking about refreshing? Because you're talking about looking at, you know, 10, 20, 30 years of performance. So it doesn't sound like something where the list should be changing in a great degree month to month. Absolutely. So I've got two types of subscribers. I've got people who pay for the year because it's a little cheaper than paying month to month. So you pay for the year and you're in your and you're set, right? So these are people who will invest every three months, every four months, or every six months. As the dividends come in, you start collecting them and then you add in your own money that you want to invest. And then so you basically only need the report when you're ready to invest. So if you're going to invest two, three, four times a year, then that's when you would read the report. And then I have some subscribers who it's sort of pay as you go, right? They would subscribe for the first month. And it's really easy. You go into your account, you say, I'm done, and you're done. And then you subscribe again when you need it again. So it's sort of a pay-as-you-go system. That works as well, too. All right. Well, Ken Wall, I have definitely opened my mind to some new investment opportunities. I'm an index guy myself, but I think I'm going to start dipping my toes into the dividend pool a little bit. So thank you so much for coming on. And for those who are interested in this dividend value investing and want to hear more about you and simply investing, where are some of the best places they can go? So I would say the best place to go is my website, simplyinvesting.com. And then from there, you'll get links to Twitter and Facebook, but the website is the best place to go. Everything's all there. And the one thing we always like to ask is for somebody who's on their path to financial independence, what's one piece of tangible advice you would like to give them? So for me, the one piece of advice, you know, you guys have had great guests on your show and I've listened to a lot of the advice and it's fantastic. So I was trying to think of something different, something unique to say that hasn't been covered after 80 episodes (laughs) or more. So I may or may not hit the mark here. But anyway, stay focused on your end goal right? It's it's going to take time. It doesn't happen overnight. And it's not going to be, it may not be easy sometimes. There's days where you're like, oh, it's, it's, it's difficult. But if you keep your eyes on the end goal, you're going to get there, right? If it was easy, everybody would do it. By the age of 23, everybody would achieve fire and they'd be financially independent. But it's not easy. So if you stay focused on the end goal, that's a good approach and to keep you on track. All right. And Ken Wall, you're almost out of here, but we have one more question. This is the wild card question where I didn't prepare. Justin didn't prepare. So you definitely didn't prepare, but are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) All right. So we've been talking a lot about evaluating stocks, making sure you have the right investment in front of you, making sure it checks all 12 boxes on the 12 rules of simply investing. But I'm sure that like you said before, it doesn't always work out. So what is one story about a stock that you were sure it was a surefire win, you were super gung-ho about it, and then that stock just went belly up? Oh, great question. It makes me feel bad to say this, but <laughs> a great question. Washington Mutual. So this was a bank that had been around since the 1800s. They'd been around such a long time. They had a history of paying dividends. I did get greedy towards the end at around 2008, where the dividend yield went up to like, I believe it was 9 or 10%. So I was like, wow, this is amazing. I got to put money into this thing, right? So I kind of violated one of the rules. I kind of said, well, I got greedy and the dividend was way too high. And then everybody knows what happened in 2008 with the financial crisis and the banks collapsed. Washington Mutual was one of them. And luckily I didn't put too much money in there. It was about $2,000. And that went down to zero in about four weeks. Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) But you learn, you learn. (laughs) Well, Kenwall, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an interesting episode. You took all of our questions in stride. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show. And I hope everyone gets a chance to go out there and learn more about you and your story. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. 
Another great episode, Cody. I mean, you know, I always love hearing people's like personal story where it's just kind of about them, but this is one of those episodes where you really get to learn about a specific topic much more than you do just the person's story. What do you think about it? Yeah, I think Ken Wall has a really calculated method of doing this. It's not like he's just going out and buying random dividend stocks. Like he said, some dividend investors do. He has a really calculated process where every single stock in his portfolio has to pass these 12 rules or else he is not touching it. And a lot of these rules made a lot of sense, like make sure the company's recession proof or, hey, make sure this company has been increasing its dividends over the past 20 years. Make sure this company has certain ratios. So he's really, really calculated. As he mentioned, he's a computer science guy. He's building all these complicated spreadsheets. And so at this point, he's kind of just automated the full process of figuring out the technical, the quantitative aspects, at least. And then it's up to him to get those last few qualitative ones right. Yeah. Another thing this does is helps hedge against what one of the main reasons people say not to invest in individual stocks, and that is these emotional triggers. So you're not just sitting there and saying, oh, well, I see this on the news. It's going up. It's going up. Like I feel like I got here on this train and then all of a sudden it collapses. This is giving you some rigor, you know, some things to put around it, some like checks and balances to make sure that you pick something that is worthwhile before going into it. So like you said, you may not hit every one of them, but these rules are pretty stringent. So that means that like it's going to be rare that you're going to have something that just folds. I mean, how many companies increase a dividend for 20 years and are recession proof and yada, 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 and then just disappear one day? Obviously, there are some cases, but it is adding a lot of protection in there. Again, a lot of these checks and balances to keep you from just getting obsessed with a company because you hear all your coworkers talking about it. And something else I really liked about this episode and Ken Wall in particular, and Justin, you had mentioned this, is that he was taking all of our questions in stride. Obviously, as indexers, we were pushing him on some of these questions because we're making sure like, okay, is this legit? Is this accurate? And Ken Wall was coming back with these answers without pause. And so one of the things in particular that impressed me or just something I hadn't thought about before was, okay, you get the dividends in cash, not in quote unquote cash deposited, say in your Vanguard or your Fidelity or Schwab account every single month. And he's going in, he's manually re-diversifying these dividends. So it's kind of getting rid of some of that individual company risk that you would expect if you were just reinvesting the same dividends into the same companies as a regular you know, stock investor. So I really liked how Ken Wall was kind of bringing that extra level of diversification, that extra level of protection capturing those gains and then going and manually reinvesting those gains into that same portfolio of companies that check off all those 12 boxes. And now it's time for the call to action. Cody, the call to action this week is a little interactive for the listeners out there. So what we're asking you guys to do this week is to go out there and leave a review on iTunes. And then once you've left that review, just send us a message, a screenshot, letting us know like what your username is in the review you can send that via email, which you can find at thefileshow.com, or you can do it via Facebook if you're in our community page. And then because Kenwa has been nice enough to donate a couple of his resources, we'll select two winners. One of those winners will get a full year to Kenwa's report. The other winner will get access to his paid course. Again, these will be completely free to you. All you have to do is go out to iTunes, leave a review for the podcast, and send us proof that you left it. These reviews are huge to us. It allows us to keep creating this awesome content without any charge to you guys because the sponsors really put a lot of weight on it. Love that call to action, Justin. Thank you, listeners, those who support us, those who have left those five-star ratings and reviews before. Again, it really, really helps us out. And thank you to Ken Wall, who donated his course. I think it's like 300 bucks. And a year of the Simply Investing Report is like $200. He's tossing us $500 to our awesome Show listeners. So thank you, guys. Thank you, Ken Wall. And if you want to access all the resources, everything we talked about today, 
You can do that at thefyshow.com slash canwall. That's K-A-N-W-A-L, thefyshow.com slash canwall. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.